Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. I am Donald Meisel, minister here, moderator of these forums. Voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. That has been our overarching theme these past eight years, and it continues in vogue as we prepare to introduce today's speaker, Frederick Beekner. Frederick Beekner is one of the most widely read contemporary writers of socially, religiously, and ethically sensitive material. Clergy men and women in the broad middle spectrum of American religious life devour his material, are stimulated by his ability to probe, sting, delight, and challenge. He's widely quoted from pulpits up and down the land, including Westminster's pulpit, and must be credited with stimulating many a fresh insight into American life, church life, personal life, the life of faith, the life of honest thought and appropriate action. He's written 11 novels, including Godric, nominated for the 1981 Pulitzer Prize, The Final Beast, and more recently, Brendan. He has written nine nonfiction books, ranging from theological reflections to essays to autobiography. His The Alphabet of Grace was delivered as the Nobel Lectures at Harvard in the mid-70s. In 1973, he published Wishful Thinking, a theological ABC, brief definitions of key words. Allow me to read uh, one or two quickly. Agnostic. An agnostic is somebody who doesn't know for sure whether there really is a God. That is some people all of the time and all the people some of the time. Or grace. Grace is something you can never get but only be given. There's no way to earn it or deserve it or bring it about any more than you can deserve the taste of raspberries and cream or earn good looks or bring about your own birth. A good sleep is grace and so are good dreams. Most tears are grace. Somebody loving you is grace. Loving somebody is grace. This, and I saved this for the end because of the day. The smell of rain is grace. Mr. Beekner's most recent work is entitled Whistling in the Dark, an ABC Theologized, in which he uses more just plain words than in the earlier work. Here is a sample on the word art. In a world that for the most part steers clear of the whole idea of holiness, art is one of the few places left where we can speak to each other of holy things. That definition or comment ushers in the subject that our guest is about to address, art and religion. Frederick Beekner, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Meisel, and thank all of you very much indeed. I'm sure that everybody here remembers those tiny little short 17-syllable Japanese poems known as haiku, 
which were very popular in this country a few years back. I remember when I was teaching at Exeter, everybody was writing them. One of the lovely things about them is anybody can write them. Uh, and I wanted to start out today by reading you one of the most famous of them by one of the great haiku masters, a poet named Basho, about whom I know absolutely nothing, whatever, but nonetheless, this perhaps most famous of all haiku goes this way. An old silent pond, into the pond a frog jumps, splash, silence again. I know my time is on my mind, I want to run it past you again quickly. An old silent pond, into the pond a frog jumps, splash, silence again. As in the case of all real haiku, the subject is entirely humdrum, pedestrian. The language couldn't be simpler. Basho doesn't make any comment on the scene he's describing. He doesn't imply that it means anything beyond what it plainly states. There's absolutely nothing to suggest that he's presenting it as a kind of metaphor for something else. He simply invites our attention to no more, if no less, than this very small event of the old pond in its watery stillness, and the kerplunk of the frog, and then the gradual return of the stillness. In other words, what he's doing, in effect, is simply taking the moment and putting a frame around it. That's a very simple thing to do in one way, and yet a very important thing to do also, because what frames do in general, I think, and what the frame of the haiku does in particular, is to enable us not to see something about the moment, but simply to see the moment itself, by which I mean really see it. The frog, the pond, the stillness, there they are. Basho's 17 syllables frame them in all their ineffable ordinariness and particularity. He doesn't embellish them or intellectualize them or poeticize them in any of the ways he presumably could have done if he'd chosen to, but merely presents them to us bare and invites us to look at them and at the moment that contains them for what they are in themselves and by themselves alone. I think I speak not just for myself, but I think the chances are that if you or I happened to have been passing by when that frog jumped, we wouldn't have noticed a thing. Or if we had noticed it, either we wouldn't have given it a second thought, which means we might as well not have noticed it, or as compulsive thinkers, Western thinkers, we would have given it so many second thoughts that we would soon have lost all track of the scene itself and gotten lost instead in what was going on inside our own heads. But the magic of the haiku, the sort of minimal form of the haiku, keeps us from doing that. The magic of it is to set the scene off from everything else that distracts us, both the things going on inside our heads and the things going on all around us. And at least for as long as that little bit of a poem works, to help us to see that moment with more immediacy and intensity of focus than for as long as the poem lasts, we see anything else. The poem, as a frame, doesn't change the moment. Instead, what it does change, of course, is ourselves. It makes noticers of it, of us. It changes us by making us notice the moment 
more fully and deeply than we would ever have noticed it on our own, presumably. And I think that's the chief function of any kind of frame you can think of, including the frame around the photograph, and also the haiku's chief function. And what's more, it seems to me that making us notice the moment more fully and deeply is a chief function, maybe the chief function, not only of the haiku, but of literature in general, not to mention all the other arts as well. So all that I want to do this morning in my little bit of time is to amplify that slightly and relate it to what I think is also one of the chief functions, maybe the chief function, of religious faith. From the simplest lyric you can imagine, something by Robert Louis Stevenson out of the Child's Garden of Verses, let's say, to the most complex and profound poem you can think of, Paradise Lost or something, or novel or drama, what it seems to me literature is essentially asking us to do is to pay attention. Pay attention to the frog jumping into the pond. Pay attention to the west wind. Pay attention to the black man escaping with a kid on a raft, to the young Danish princeling whose father has been murdered. Of course, literature is asking us to do a lot of other things too. It's asking us to understand, it's asking us to learn, it's asking us to shed tears, to laugh, to hope. And in our doom-ridden age, sometimes it's asking us to despair. But prior to all of that, and prerequisite to all of that, it's asking us to see what there is to see. It's asking us to pay attention to the world and all that dwells therein. And by doing that, to learn at last, to pay attention to ourselves and all that dwells therein too, not to mention to other selves and all that dwells in them. In fact, I would be willing to go as far as to say in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as I understand it, literature's most sacred purpose and also its greatest power is by making noticers of us attention payers of us helps make us at last something much closer to being truly human beings. Now I suspect the art of painting, about which I know nothing, does very much the same thing. I think of Rembrandt, to me one of the greatest of them all putting a frame around an old woman's face. He's so good at the faces of old people. It's a face seamed with wrinkles. The upper lip is sunken in where most of the teeth are missing. The skin is waxy and almost as pale as the tight-fitting white cap she wears and the white ruff around her neck. It's not a remarkable face. <clears throat> you wouldn't look twice at that old woman if you found her sitting across the aisle from you on a bus, I suspect, or coming down Nicollet Mall with a bag full of groceries in her arms, but as Rembrandt presents it to us, it's a face so remarkably seen that it makes you and me see it remarkably too. It gives us a new pair of eyes in a way to see with, just the way Monet gives us a new pair of eyes to see a pond full of water lilies, I'd say. The old woman has a face unlike any other face in the world, 
true of all of our faces, yet all the other faces in the world are somehow in her old face, just as her old face is in all of them. And through the power of Rembrandt's art, the painting art, we start being able to see all the other faces that cross our path in the course of the day in somewhat the same intense and feeling way that Rembrandt has made it possible for us to see that one old woman's face. And then music. Painters work with space. Things behind and front and to the left and to the right. Uh, musicians work with time, as I understand it. They work with note following note as minute follows minute, as tick follows talk, as the sound of the strings in a great orchestra follows the sound of the brass and is echoed then by the pulse of the timpani. Music, we say, keeps time. Marvelous phrase I've never thought of before. And we might almost say that music enables us to keep time in the sense of keeping track of time, keeping in touch with time in all its richness and fullness and variety as we keep on moving and breathing in the endless and mysterious flow of our own time. Listen, says Bach, says Brahms, says Puccini. Listen to this stretch of time that I have framed for you between the first note of my music and the last note, and listen to these wonderful sounds I'm making in time. Listen to the way the silence is broken up into uneven lengths between the separate sounds of my music and to the sound of the silences themselves. Listen also to them. Listen to the scrape of bow against gut, the rattle of stick against drumhead, the rush of breath through reed and wood. Listen to the singing of the human voice, which gives color and shape and substance to the little stretch of time that in a way it sings into life and into our lives. As the old musical comedy song of my boyhood says, the sounds of the earth are like music and the sounds of music are also like the sounds of the earth. Because of course that's presumably where music must have come from in the first place. Music must have come from the calling of birds and the splashing of fountains and the supping of wind and the grass. Music comes from the sounds of the earth. And then once we've heard it, it takes us back to the sounds of the earth. Only now with ears that it is taught to listen, much the same way that painting teaches eyes to see. Because I think what music ultimately does is to ask us to listen to the voices outside the window, to the rumble of the furnace, to the creak of the chair, to the patter of rain on the roof. It asks us to listen to the music of our own lives, to the rhythm and flow, the sounds and silences of the times that, out of all times, are allotted to you and me. Stop, look, and listen. That, I think, is the lesson not just of Basho's weird little 17 syllables about the frog, 
But the most basic lesson that all art teaches us, literature, painting, drama, dance, I think you could work with any of them, all of them, stop, look, listen to life on the third planet from the sun, including our own lives and each other's lives, and listen to it as a vastly more fascinating and mysterious business than most of the time it ever occurs to us to suspect as we, if you're like me, bumble along from day to day on automatic pilot, on cruise control, not seeing much or hearing much or noticing much because in our madness we think there's nothing much worth noticing, nothing we haven't already seen a thousand times already. Don't kid yourself. To put it another way, in words that you already heard quoted by Dr. Meisel, what seems to me in this, in many ways, post-Christian age, which is in many ways abandoned the whole idea of holiness, what's that? The world of art is one of the few places left where we can still be confronted by and moved by, maybe even changed by the holiness, or if that word bothers people, the mystery, the preciousness that exists in all of us and in all creation. And I really don't think it's forcing things to say that stop, look, and listen is also the most basic lesson, in a way, that our own Judeo-Christian tradition teaches us. It's worth thinking about, I think. Listen to history is certainly the cry of the ancient prophets of Israel. Look at social injustice, says Amos. Look at the terrible indifference of the rich to the poor. Stop and take notice of the struggle of the nations and the threat of cataclysmic war, says Isaiah. Pay attention to the total irrelevance of much that goes on in church, says Jeremiah. Pay attention to what's going on in the world around you because it's precisely through what's going on in the world around you that God speaks his word of judgment and command. That is the word of the prophets. And then Jesus, blessed be he, comes along saying that of all the laws and commandments, the greatest of all is to love God and to love each other, by which he also is asking us to pay attention. If we're to love God, if we're to love God, we've first got to stop and look and listen for God in what's happening around us and inside us, just the way Basho stopped for a moment at the stillness of that pond. If we're supposed to love each other before doing anything else, we've got to see each other. We've got to learn to listen to each other the way we listen to Bach and the way Bach has taught us to listen. Like painters, we've got to start trying to see not just the faces that float at us down the crowded street or that face me as I stand up here, but the life 
the mystery, the hopes and fears and dreams, whatever else, within their faces. The way Rembrandt saw the face of that old woman. And for Jesus, the frame to see each other in is not 17 syllables, but only one syllable. Because for Jesus, of course, the frame is love. It's by loving our neighbors that we're enabled to see them, just as it is that by seeing them, we're enabled to love them. Emily Dickinson, the Belle of Amherst, wrote a letter to a friend, which I came across one glorious moment, once in which she made a marvelous confession. The only commandment she never broke, Emily said, if you can imagine Emily breaking any commandment, the only commandment she never broke, she said, was consider the lilies of the field. And she could have done a lot worse. Consider the lilies. Consider the lilies. It's absolutely indispensable, I think, both to art and to religion. In both, we must learn to consider, of course, not just with our senses of seeing and hearing, but also with our imagination. And thus, finally, a word about that, too, about imagination, about imagining as a way of seeing, perceiving, which the saint and the artist both, I think, have in common. It seems to me that imagining is maybe as close as human beings can get to creating something out of nothing the way God does. I think also it's a power that to one degree or another everybody has or can develop by whistling. Like muscles that can be strengthened through practice and exercise, you practice, you practice until you can actually hear again Let's say your grandfather's voice. God only knows when the last time was you heard it. Or until you can feel the rush of hot air when you open the 450 degree oven. If you keep at it, even, a, even as far away from the sea as this city, you can, in your imagination, smell the sea. You can hear the mewing of the gulls. You can see in your mind's eye the faces of people who've been dead for an awfully long time. You can smell the smell of autumn leaves burning. And you don't have to be asleep to dream dreams either. There are those who can sit at their desks wide awake, imaginers, and come up with dreams laid 20,000 leagues under the sea or on the other side of a looking glass. And if imagination plays a major role in the creation of art, as indeed it does, it plays also a, a major one in the appreciation of art, a willing suspension of disbelief. As Wordsworth said, which means that for at least a little while, through the imagination, we let ourselves be caught up in and exalted by 
what Bach's B minor mass, let's say, is telling us about the beauty and order and harmony of things, or let ourselves be touched and humanized by a great portrait by Rembrandt or somebody else. And in the realm of religion, maybe especially, it seems to me it's crucial to try to read scripture, to try to read the Bible imaginatively, to be the man who trips over a million bucks buried in the field, to be one of the ones who sat somewhere and heard him say, come unto me, O ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You've got to imagine hearing that, I think, and imagine feeling what it was to hear that, if you want to know what faith is all about. I think of a New York bag lady, maybe you have them here too, settling down for the night on the hot air grating. Two kids chirping like birds in the sandbox. The bride as she walks down an aisle like that on her father's arm. The old man staring into space in the nursing room, TV room. If we want to know what loving them is all about, we have to imagine what it's like to live inside their skins. We have to try to listen not just to the words they speak, but to the words they don't speak, who they're scared to. We have to try to feel like what it's like to be who they are. Chirping like a bird because for a moment you are a bird. Trying not to wobble as you move slowly on high heels into the future with every eye on the great church upon you. And I think that when Jesus said, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, he was seeing all of those people. He was seeing rich people as well as poor people. He was seeing lucky people as well as unlucky people. He was seeing idle people as well as hardworking people. He was seeing the bride and the old man. He was seeing all of them. He was seeing all of us who are laboring and heavy laden, even when we would sooner be caught dead most of the time and talk about it, and even when we don't fully realize it ourselves. And I think that the highest and holiest purpose of the imagination is to have eyes like Jesus that can see people like you and me like that. Well, I, art and religion. <clears throat> I think of all, as I look at you, I think of all the books that you and I have read over the years, the good ones especially. I think of all the great music we've heard, all the beautiful paintings we've seen in this city and in other cities.
I think of all the time that probably all of us have spent on the arts in one form or another, in school or out of school, and we could have been doing something sensible and practical. Does it make any difference, all that time that we've spent? Well, art entertains us, to be sure. It helps pass the time. It adds to our education, gives us something to talk about. But beyond that, is there any real point to it, do you suppose? Well, the painters, the poets, the musicians, the actors, the dancers, the sculptors, all in their different ways, put a frame around things, around us, around time, much as Jesus does. Like the saints, the artists teach us to consider the lilies of the field, to learn to see beneath all the 12 billion things that are different between you and me, to that deepest dimension that's common to all of us, I'm sure of that, which is the longing deep in each of us and the same longing to become wise and brave, beautiful and human. And the artists remind us, as our faith reminds us, that we can never hope to become wise and beautiful and brave and human until we reach outward to each other and inward to that ultimate mystery buried deep in all of us, which is where that deepest longing comes from and is also the final object of our longing. To consider with our hearts, to consider with our imaginations, to hear the sound of the Japanese frog jumping into the pond as a great te deum and the silence that follows it as a great benediction, maybe, to look at and for once, by grace, actually to see each other and ourselves with something like understanding and compassion. If the time we spend, we'll go on spending, I hope, with reading, music, painting, and all the sisters' arts, if that time helps us to do that, then it is indeed time richly spent. And I think it's not too much to say that it's also, in the truest sense of the word, holy time. That's exactly a half an hour. I hope you all noticed that. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Mr. Beekner, by virtue of your words about literature and painting and music and drama and the other disciplines, it strikes us that uh, you have put a fresh frame around our world and each other and indeed our own lives. And we thank you for inviting us to stop 
and to look and to listen. We do take a moment now to permit those who must leave to do so and also to remind our radio audience that you are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. We delight in the fact that the General Mills Foundation has helped bring Mr. Beekner to town. Let me remind the radio audience that, furthermore, you have an opportunity to be part of the question period that will follow momentarily. Uh, simply call the church, uh, uh, give us the question you have in mind. The number is 332-3421, 332-3421. We can't deal with it uh, on airtime, and we'll try. Uh, we'll pass it on to Mr. Beekner uh, to make it part of his thinking when he takes his, his leave of us. Well, uh, Mr. Beekner, would you return to the podium, please? And uh, I'm reminded of something you said. Words are power, essentially the power of creation. By my words, I both discover and create who I am, and by my words, I elicit a word from you. Through our converse, we create each other. So we're here to uh, create and recreate each other through a, a question period. <clears throat> the questions are being brought forward. I have one or two ready to go, so why don't I, uh, rather than waste any time, uh, we're not supposed to po talk about politics or religion, but let's talk about both. Um, <laughs> What do you think of the political campaign? How are we doing? Or do you wish to talk about religion? <laughs> I'd much rather talk about religion. All right. Um, I, I couldn't help but note in your most recent book uh, a speech that you oh, yeah. might have put on the lips of a current presidential candidate. And I think that was behind my question. I, I thought it was a, a lovely statement that I, I commended to those who would read the book. Uh, about the, the church, uh, you have some uh, poignant comments in your work about uh, uh, your writings about the church, about the, uh, the kingdom of God being you know, coexistent with uh, the church or not connected at all, at all, or maybe the circles overlap. How are you feeling about the church in this generation? There's a movie called Hannah and Her Sisters, I hope you saw where uh, the character of the elderly painter, who was the boyfriend of one of the sisters, apropos of I can't remember what, says if Jesus were to come back today and see what was being done in his name, he'd never stop throwing up. And I, I can't help but that's part of my answer. Uh, it seems to me that one of the most convincing proofs for the existence of God that I can think of, and I mean this quite literally, is the fact that the whole God enterprise survives despite the travesty of it that we behold on television screens, crooks and charlatans and vaudevillians, that poor kid in North Carolina who's preaching a generation of vipers to all these children in the playground, the cheapening of it, the, uh, how can any serious, sophisticated, intelligent person take seriously anything that is propounded by people like that? Uh, I think also, in all honesty, of the church in my part of New England, where the churches are empty, virtually, and with good reason, because there's not much going on in those churches. I think of the big Midwestern University, which I will not name, which I just came from, where I preached the other day. and. Uh, <laughs> Very nearly empty, uh, 
very little sense that much was going on in there. Uh, so I, you know, I, I, this is obviously only a part of the truth, and I could tell you other things. I could tell you the church I found not so far away from here, not so long ago, that was so nourishing and so full of life and so full of spirit that I would have moved to that state if I hadn't had a million reasons why I couldn't just to be near that church. But it does make me wonder, what's, the, what's going to happen? God is most assuredly not dead. But in many ways, at least in my experience, in my part of the world, the church is. So what's he going to try next? That's a question I could ask you, and I have a little answer to that, but I won't give it now. Okay? <clears throat> in your Sacred Journey, a book that I hope everyone will read sooner or later, you speak of your grandmother, uh, Beekner, and uh, you comment, when the winter was up, she condoned our going back to Bermuda, I think it was, because in the long run, she loved us more than she even loved her principles. Uh, I'd be interested in hearing what you say about principles uh, as opposed to something else. Well, I've always thought, I mean, principles are what a lot of people have instead of God. Mm -hmm. You know, on principle, uh, you know, some, some principle, some uh, code of behavior, some moral stance, which becomes a kind of absolute for you. And uh, if you don't have God, I suppose it's better than having nothing, but it's certainly not the same thing as having God. And I think there are all sorts of examples I could give you. I mean, the, uh, uh, I remember one sort of silly example was a, a young minister who came to uh, take the church in a little town near me in Vermont, whose principle was not to drink, and a very good one. Uh, he had alcoholism in his family and he didn't want to do it, which meant he did not go to cocktail parties on principle. But by doing that, he cut himself off, this is a cocktail party community, from the very people he was there in the name of Christ to serve. So in the name of a good principle, he uh, sort of scuttled what his faith is all about. I've never been very big, I have very few principles myself. <laughs> 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 Question from the floor. Two of your recent books, Godric and Brendan, deal with early Christian saints. What qualities of their lives attracted you to these rather obscure figures of history? Um, what attracts me to saints, the, the, the first saint I dealt with was one uh, that I made up without knowing he was a saint. I mean, I invented this person named Leo Bebb, who was in many ways not a saintly person. He had done time on a charge of indecent exposure. He ran a diploma mill. He did all sorts of bad things. But he turned out for me to be a saint, and the reason he did was that he was a life giver. I never knew that was what a saint was before. A saint is, I think, a life giver. The Holy Spirit has been called the Lord and giver of life. And a saint is one who is so filled with that that to be near him or to be near her, hers, to be brought more alive, to see more, to notice more, to feel more, to be more. To, I got to a point where I, the only people that interested me in, in writing about it all were saints of one sort or another. Uh, well, that was Janet and then Godric and Brendan, these two ancient figures, Godric 11th century and Brendan the sixth. I was attracted to them simply because like every real saint that I know anything about, they were also like you and me. They didn't walk around with visible halos. They did all sorts of hideous things, thought bad thoughts and spoke bad language, but the power and the glory of God worked through their lives into the lives of others by bringing them to life. And uh, that's how I got hooked on both of them. And I'm looking for another, or maybe I'll have to try to make another one up. 
<laughs> Perhaps this next question ties in, a question from the floor. How do you ease the stress of daily life so that you can look and listen without turning that into yet another obligation? How can you be contemplative and productive in one lifetime? Uh -huh. Well, I'm trying to thread my way through that question. Uh, I'm not sure this is an answer to the question, but it's something I'm going to say because it, it interests me a lot. I've, I've never thought of myself as a workaholic, but in a way I think I have been. I mean, for the last, since 1967, I've written on the average of a book a year. And I think I did it because, like the rest of you, I have that sort of Protestant work ethic. And especially as a minister whose ministry is writing books, I've got to do it to justify my life, to justify my existence, and so on. And I'm glad I did it, because I think the best thing I've done with my life probably is those books that I wrote. But this winter, by a series of events, which I won't trouble you with, I simply decided you don't have to do that, at least not for a while. You don't have to justify your existence. Just try existing. And I took the winter off, and I spent a lot of time staring into space. I uh, saw people I liked a lot read some, prayed, meditated. I'd never been much good at meditation. I'm still not much good, but I began to at least move in that area. And um, I feel in many ways better inside my <coughs> skin than I have for a long time. I, I've forgotten now the question, contemplation, productivity. I've tried to do them both, but certainly to the uh, sacrifice of contemplation. So I took the winter off that would be a sort of grandiose word for it, but to, <laughs> in quotation marks, contemplate, and I'm awfully glad I did. Now I'd rather look forward to getting back to doing okay. something. How does someone who is impaired visually, audibly, etc., get their inspiration from life around them? I don't know. Mm -hmm. And how can I answer that? Um, except I think we've all known people who were impaired in one way or the other who seem to be given as a kind of compensatory grace, an extraordinarily acute sense in another direction, in the blind person who uh, hears and senses things and so on. We can never know, I think, the answer about, that kind of answer about any of us, whether mm -hmm. we're impaired or not impaired. But I think there are very few, few of us, whatever, whatever way we're impaired, and most of us aren't impaired by some handicap like deafness or blindness, we're impaired by long habit of inattention. just getting through life on automatic pilot, as I said. You don't have to do that. You really don't have to do that. I think I have to reflect that there's a marvelous exhibit of paintings by impaired people at Abbott Northwestern Hospital right now, and they, they are absolutely astonishing in their, in their perception. Hmm. Love to see them. Please comment on the quote of Derek Guthrie about contemporary art, the quote being, art is about the questions, religion is about the answers. Do you agree? Art is about questions. Religion is about the answers. I know you've written about questions to some considerable extent. No, I, I, I don't agree. I mean, I, mm -hmm. think, uh, I think a really great book or a great religious statement or work of art are about both. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, um, 
I, I, I think of the brothers Karamazov, one of the novels I'm always thinking about, because I think maybe it's the greatest novel, which is, as Dostoevsky himself said, it's about the question of God, and indeed it is. Does he or does he not exist? And this is hashed over between the characters again and again. But it's not just about questions. God knows. It's a mighty preachment about the fact that God does exist, very likely, in all sorts of strange and mysterious and powerful ways. And with the same token, I think the, uh, I mean, the New Testament itself is not a book of only answers. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He raises an ultimate question. So I, I, I would say, when they're, doing it, when they're doing the job right, both the artist and the religious are, are, are dealing in both. Another question from the floor. If successful art frames an image to stimulate our awareness, why are more people drawn to art that is old and familiar, not to art that is new and provocative? If in, in fact that is true. Yeah, more, if, you, you want to just read me sure. the beginning again? Yeah. Right. If, uh, given what you've said about art framing, yeah. why are more people drawn to art that is old and familiar, not to art that is new and provocative? Well, I, I mean, I don't know that that's true or not. Yeah. Uh, I really don't know. I can't answer that. Uh, except I want to say something about it. I, uh, <laughs> I mean, it seems to me there's something important in there. I'm not sure that we're drawn, I think often when we're drawn to sort of traditional art, uh, to Da Vinci's The Last Supper or the stained glass windows at uh, Chartres Cathedral or some of the great hymns, we're not really looking for insight so much as for comfort. It's familiar. Grandmother loved it. Uh, we've lived with it a long time. I mean, I'm, that's not to answer the question. I got might be why maybe more people are drawn to that. I don't know. That's all I have to say about that. Your books reveal your very special ability to see like the frog. How do you learn to see like that? <laughs> you have to take time. I mean, it's as simple as that. You have to take time. You take time for an awful lot of other things. So why not, why not take time to see your own life? And the image that I think of very often, uh, which I've used in this new little book of mine, is people sitting down at 6.30 in Vermont or whatever time you have it and watching the news of the day. Dan Rather or Tom Brokaw, one of those people, you check back over it. And the search for peace and the threat of war and the violence and the hope and so the rest of it. And to one degree or another, how does it affect me, if at all? And it seems to me the least we can do in answering how do you learn to see is take time at some point, if not even every day, let's say every other day, once a week, to look back at the news of your day. Not just what you might write in a diary, went to market at 10 and met Billy at half past two, but you're searching for peace if you're like me. You're under constant threat a hundred different ways. Um, you're looking for peace. Little things that happened. A chance meeting in the post office, a letter you didn't write or did write, a 
thing a child said, a tear that came into your eye. Just take time at the end of the day to listen to the news of that day. It's a terribly good way to pray also. How do you see? Do it. Take time out to do it. 20 minutes a week. Another question from the floor. Many of us are goal and task oriented. What is your objective in your novels? Uh, was it different in A Long Day's Dying than in Godrill, for instance? What is your objective? Yeah, my objective in my novels is my objective as a human being generally, or certainly as a, as a religious human being, as a preacher, as a minister, whatever I am. Human beings cannot save each other's souls, but I think very often they can at least prepare the ground in which it is easier for God to save people's souls. And one of the ways they do it is to say what I've just been saying, listen to your lies, because that is where God is present, if he's present at all, in a way that matters to you. It's in what happened to you yesterday and what's going to happen to you tomorrow and what's happening to you 20 minutes from now. Um, and I'm saying that as a preacher, I'm also saying it as a, uh, as a novelist. Trying to hold up the holiness, if you, or if you don't like that word, the mystery, the preciousness, and so on of life. Uh, when you ask me about A Long Day's Dying, that's a book I wrote when I was about seven and a half years old, at least so it seems. Long time ago. I don't know what on earth I was trying to, I think I was trying to be famous. <laughs> um, more than anything else, but at the same time, I think I, one of the things that I've never had the courage to go back and literally read that book from cover to cover, I don't think I ever would, but one of the things that I remember uh, fascinated me and transcended my wish just to be famous was the way people don't talk to each other very well. And we so rarely speak about things that really matter to each other. Even people you know, maybe especially the people you know the best, your wife, your child, your husband, your best friend, we don't talk about life and death and hope. And uh, insofar as I was doing that, then I was, without knowing it, I think working the same kind of territory I've been working ever since, saying, in effect, do talk. Do listen. Thank you. In Lion Country, Antonis Parr says that maybe death is just a complicated misunderstanding do you have any further thoughts on the subject? <laughs> I can't remember the context in which Antonio, he's playing on something. Somebody said death is just a complicated misunderstanding. Well, yeah, I, I don't know any, I'm inventing some thoughts for you right now. I mean, uh, I don't understand death. I think about it, but I don't understand it. I'm sure it'll be full of surprises. Um, And uh, the older I get, I think the more I, I'm not afraid of it. But I think of it as a wild adventure. Um, maybe not, maybe I'd change it. Death is not just a complicated misunderstanding. Death is a complicated understanding, let's say, yeah. What five books would you take with you on a remote island? <laughs> I'd take the Bible. I'd take the works of William Shakespeare. I'd take the poems of Gerard Manley Hopkins. 
I would take, um, um, if I could include them all, the seven Narnia books, how's that many, four? Uh, what would be the last mm -hmm. one? Um, And maybe a telephone directory, just to remind me of all those people. <laughs> I think you just led into this next question. Are you an admirer of C.S. Lewis? Could you comment on his views of the imagination? I couldn't really comment on his views of the imagination. I could certainly comment on his use of the imagination. Mm. Uh, I mean, he, I think the greatest, to me, C.S. Lewis is more powerful, I think, as a fiction writer than he is, though I love his apologetic works, uh, than he is as a non-fiction writer, and uh, especially the Narnia books, which I return to for comfort and hope, and uh, a wonderful imaginer. And I think his greatest gift, without a question, if I had to say one thing that he did, which was preeminently worth doing, and perhaps worth all the others, was to dream up as an image for Christ, Aslan the Great Lion, who we, who we're reminded again and again in those books, it's not a tame lion. I hope you've all read those books, but a frightening lion in many ways, but a beloved lion. Uh, he was a great imaginer. And, uh, mm -hmm. It's amazing that he was also a great, uh, in his way, thinker. The, the trouble with him, to me, as an apologist, is that like, I think, all Englishmen, or most Englishmen, are born with a tremendous gift, not only for the English language, but for a kind of rational, plausible lucidity of thought. And he's so good at that, that after you finish reading a book like Mere Christianity, if you've followed him through it, you come out saying, how could anybody not believe in God? I mean, he presents it so well. And yet, when I used that book, teaching at Exeter, all those kids were bright enough to know that they had been caught in a cage only of words. You mean, the belief in God finally could not either be substantiated nor negated by anything anybody had to say about it. Uh, it was based on something altogether different. I'm not, that's not a very good thing to say, but I think it's something to say. You said somewhere about doubt, I think it was in wishful thinking, if you don't have any doubts, you're either kidding yourself or asleep. Um, care to elaborate on that at all? Well, I don't know that it needs elaboration. I think it's true. I mean, if you've sort of the religious faith is something you said yes to 35 years ago and have never said anything else but yes, 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 yes. I don't think you're paying much attention either to your faith or to what's going on in the world around you. I mean, we all have things going on in our lives which if we are alert to them at all, raise the question of, if not the existence of God, at least the justice of God, the love of God, the power of God. So, yeah. Thank you. At some point you said the first stage is to believe that there is only one kind of love. The middle stage is to believe that there are many kinds of love and that the Greeks had a different word for each of them. The last stage is to believe that there's only one kind of love. Uh, would you trace that a little? Well, more? I think what I meant there was that, uh, you know, the eros and philia and agape each has its own different flavor and direction, but it seems to me that all of them involve the same mystery which is that in, whether it's the love of a friend or sexual love or love of God, there is this paradoxical experience of both losing yourself and at the same time, becoming yourself. 
whether it's in sexual ecstasy or whether it's in the friendship of an old friend or whether it's romantic love or whether it's the love of God, um, you, you lose what you find. Um, you become yourself. By giving yourself away, you become yourself. I guess what I meant. Yeah. Thank you. Perhaps time for one more question. Um, distinguish between childish and childlike, if you would. Well, it's so nice that I've written a book in which this is done for you. <laughs> uh, I mean, Jesus uh, is certainly big on being childlike. You know, unless you become as little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But St. Paul says, put away childish things. Childish, no, childlike, yes. And I think there's no great mystery. I mean, childish means selfish, noisy, uh, uh, self-centered, irrational, all the things that childishness means, brattiness, really. Childlikeness is innocence, really. A willingness to, an openness to what's there. You know, wise, if somebody said there was a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, a wise man would say, you're crazy. And a child would say, I'll go look. And that's important. And maybe that's what Jesus means uh, to be, you know, unless you become like a child. Child means open. Child means hope. Child sees, notices. Children haven't learned like you and me to go through life on automatic pilot. They see what's there. You said earlier that music enables us to keep time. Well, radio stations are also pretty good at that. So let me quote in closing something that R.G. Collinwood said that I think applies to you. True artists write to tell us the secrets of our hearts, the knowledge that we cannot afford to live without. And we count you as among those artists. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.